1: Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Our guest in this episode bought his first property at just 19 years of age, and since then has built a property portfolio worth $4 million. His name is Daniel Walsh. He's 28 years old and has now started his own business, helping others to achieve the same success that he's achieved in the property environment. The business is called Your Property, Your Wealth, and it aims to assist clients in building high-performance property portfolios to allow them to retire with a passive income. That's where we all wanna be. I wanna ask Daniel how he scraped up enough money to buy his first property at such a young age, and what are the skills he's acquired in order to launch this new business, this business of helping others build property portfolios. And, of course, I'm gonna give him an opportunity to ask me a couple of questions. This guy has turned his business from being an investor to being in the business of helping others become investor. It's a really good yarn. So let's get into it. Daniel, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm looking at you now. You're a pretty young bloke and you've got your wife sitting over here, business partner. Um, you're both pretty young. How old are you, mate? 28 years old. Yeah. 28 years old. Yeah. And you got a property portfolio. Yeah. So I've got nine properties. Nine properties. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, because obviously real estate is a very topical conversation in this country in particular, and uh, it it is for as long as I can remember. Um, I mean, I've been in the home loan business now for at least 30 years, Um, and uh, to some extent I made my money out of lending money to people on property portfolios, but it's always intrigued me, property portfolios. It sounds, well, on one hand, you've got these mobs who put up these seminars and at the same time they're selling real estate behind the wall. Um, And, you know, that's a real worry. And I know the regulator, ASICs really worry about those sorts of people. Like your marketeers, you know, they're selling uh, property with another 30% added on top of what the developer wanted to sell for. And it never reaches its valuation and poor suckers go in there and get sort of conned. Then on the flip side, if you get people like yourself who've done all this on your own and I'm not sure whether you've actually bought anything from a marketeer, but we'll cover that off. Um, and you obviously started with one property. You started somewhere. Yeah. So I want to know how you decided to get into buying real estate and what age? Yeah. So
0: for me, I, I actually wanted to buy a property when I was 16 years old. So I was quite young. Uh, it came
1: really why? from. Why, why did you want to buy a property 16 my, years My
0: parents eight? really. So my mum and dad, my dad's run a business for 40 years. And I remember him saying to me, he said, I've made more money out of property than my business. So he said, I always put my profits from my business back into property. And that allowed me to, I guess, become financially free over time. He paid his house off and all that. He did that from, I guess, flipping properties. He did it from renovating properties. He developed properties. So he did that over probably a 25-year period. Um, and I used to spend my weekends renovating properties with my parents. So I guess I was always around it. We we're looking at properties all the time for the next one to purchase, all that type of stuff. So for me, it was just I always was around property. And I knew that when I started, so I left in year 10. So I left quite early. I knew that I wasn't going to go to uni. I was thinking to myself, I'm going to struggle to get a high paying job. So I need to get ahead of the curve for everyone else. So for me, it was, if I could buy a property and build my property portfolio, I'll be able to be 10, 15, 20 years ahead of people that were in my school at that time that were going to get high paying jobs. So I was just really knuckling down very early to be able to buy my,
1: my okay, property. Okay, let's stop there. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. 16 years of age, you you saw, you saw the, you know, the advantage of property and you listened to your dad's advice. I got that. Um, there's a lot of people out there saying, yeah, but, how the hell would you get your deposit? I mean, like, was it easier then? By the way, I think it was easier then. If you don't have a property now, I will say to everybody listening to this right now, it was easier to borrow money five years ago, three years ago, definitely 10 years ago than it is today. End of story. That is that is 100% the case. And I'm a lender. I can tell you it's much yeah. easier to borrow money then than it is now. But somehow you managed to garner together A deposit back in, what, how long ago? 10 years ago? Yeah, 2011, I bought my first property, yeah. Close enough. Um, What were you doing at that? And how old were you then? 19? So I was 19, yeah. yeah. What were you doing then? So uh, at that point, I saved from the age of 16 years old to 19. I
0: was an apprentice uh, auto
1: electrician. How did you know how much you had to save?
0: Oh, for me, it was just save as much as possible for as long as possible. So I really, for me, I was a first year apprentice, $254 a week. So not very much, but I was working with my dad as an apprentice. So I used to cut down on things like I didn't have to drive to work and, you know, phone bills and I had crappy cars. Yeah. Lived at home, all that type of stuff. So I saved $34,000 for my first deposit. Over um, what period of time? That was around
1: four years. You know? Over a four year period. Yeah. Right. And did you know that 34000 is the amount of deposit you needed? Did, did you sort of say, I need... 10% of a $340,000 property, I $34,000 or you know, forget about the stamp duty and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Did you, did you make that decision or you just said, I'm going to just try and save as much as I can?
0: I think in the early days it was, I'm just going to save as much as I can, but also from the age of 16 to 19, I'm going to learn as much as I can. So I was learning from other mentors. So I had uh, my broker, at the, or he came in a little bit later, but I had another lady that had 48 properties. So I started learning really early. My parents were teaching me as well. And it was more so, let's just save for now. And then at the end of this, then I know, you know, roughly where I need to be. So I didn't know I needed $34,000. It's just the property did present itself that needed, you know, roughly $34,000 for me to do that. And I put a 5% deposit down and went and bought
1: it. Okay. So you obtained at an early age, this thought process of saving money. That's really important if you want to buy a property because you've got to have a deposit. So you, you, the thought process and that discipline of saving money, it, it also helps because you're young and you had no responsibilities to some extent you decide not to go and get on the piss every weekend and uh, you live with your parents and you got left to work with your dad because you're an apprentice electrician, did you say? Yeah, your dad's electrician.
0: electrician. Auto electrician, yeah. Your dad's yeah. an auto electrician, isn't he? Yeah, it? Right. Yep.
1: Um, And I, that, that's okay, that that thought process, I get that bit because you know, lots of people got that thought process, prepared to go that way. What skills did you need to bring? I mean, did you renovate properties or did you just buy properties and hold them?
0: So the very first one was a subdivided block. Uh, we put a house on that first one uh, the second one was a renovation. So it was a mortgagee sale that was just around the corner. Um, so I actually renovated the second property. And then from there, I was doing a lot more buy and hold. So just buying, I guess, more affordable properties. So for me, the first two properties were in Sydney. Uh, things were getting too expensive by, so that was 2012, my second property. Um, things just started getting I don't getting want to slow expensive.
1: you down though. You're going too fast. I mean, our, our audience don't know what you're talking about. So you just have to slow down a little bit. Let me just ask you a couple of questions here. Because you know, what I'm trying to get out of you is what they need to know. Because they they they're going to say, "Wow, that's I can't do any of that," and I want them to think, "Wow, well, I can do that. Do what you do what you've done." So your first property, you said, was a subdivision. What do you mean by that?
0: So someone had already had a house, and it was a, a large enough block that they had subdivided, and they sold the block of land. So I actually back then got the block of land. Up pretty cheap. Uh, so for me, just got the block of land, and then went out there and seeked a builder to, to build the property on yeah, that. Yeah, okay.
1: So, so someone had a block of land that was pretty big or big enough that under the rules in that local area in Sydney, they could actually cut bit of it off and sell it off to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which area are we talking about? So
0: this is out near Picton Way where I lived at the time, okay. so southwest Sydney. Yep,
1: southwest Sydney, Picton, yeah. Apple country. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, obviously... One of the lessons out of that is uh, whoever owned that block of land was smart enough to realize that the council rules, which may have changed, or the government rules, which may have changed, allowed you all of a sudden to subdivide a piece of land. They subdivided this piece of land. Was it put on the market for sale? No. How did so, you know about it?
0: I knew about it because it actually was family, friends. They, they were subdividing. So they had owned the land or the house next door. They had that for about 25 years. Um, they came... Uh, they were traveling around Australia at the time. So that was basically going to be their super. And they've come back and they were living with us in a caravan out the back for about six months. They said, we're going to be subdividing. That's going to be part of our super and we're going to put that to market. And I said, well, how much do you want for it? Um, And then my parents turned around and said, well, you should probably buy that piece of land. You know, it's, it's good to to buy a property.
1: Why don't you start with that? So your parents encouraged you to, I mean, I I guess it was a, a great opportunity because not everyone knows people who are living next door are going to subdivide their block of land. But I think the lesson out of that is you've got to be opportunistic. I mean, like you've got to be looking for these opportunities. If you're not yeah. looking for them, you won't get them. It doesn't necessarily mean the opportunities will come your way, but you're still going to be out there looking. Yeah. And your parents encourage you to buy this property. Um, how much did it cost you?
0: So the whole thing was about, I think from memory, about 324000 The land? No, that was the whole thing with uh, the build. Yeah, you had to build it. But how much did yeah. the land uh, to be honest, I wouldn't even remember. I just remember the total loan was 324 okay. at the end
1: of it. Okay. So, okay. But,
0: and what was the process of getting the loan? Did you use a broker or did you go to your bank? I went straight to the bank. So, yeah. uh, it was Commonwealth Bank. To be honest, I went in with my parents. I had no idea what I was doing back then. So, just walked straight in there with the banks and, and said, This is, you know, my pay sleeves, went through all that, uh, I guess, the, the normal. And they turned around and said, You can borrow X amount. So, right. I, I did struggle even then. Uh, to borrow. So back then I was a a fourth year apprentice. So still wasn't earning great money at that point. Um, But I just managed to scrape through. So I had a few things even to get the $34,000. So back then I had a car that I actually had to sell the car um, and downsize to like a $1,500 car so that I could finish off the the property at that point because I needed to put driveways in and fences and all that type of
1: stuff. So basically what you're saying though, Daniel, is you prioritize the outcome. You said, well, this is the most important thing for me right now. I'm 19 or whatever age you were, 19. And I think people listening, because if you want to get into this market, you've got to prioritize. I mean, you've got to sort of say, that's what I want. And you've got to sacrifice everything else. Yeah. The bottom line, I mean, especially today, it's even harder. So you've got to prioritize this outcome. So what you did is you prioritized everything in order to get this property bought and built yes. and borrow the money. Yes. And when how did you find a builder?
0: Uh, for them, it was, they already had a builder in that lined up, so they were ready to go with the subdivision. Um, and I just basically bought it off them before it all started and took over what they were going to do already. So they already had plans and everything when it was subdivided, what was going to be on there. Um, and I just took over that and started building it. Approved plans? Yeah,
1: approved. Okay. So people listening again, what this is really important, um, Daniel bought a piece of subdivided land and what he did was he bought it with an approval on it. Now that approval process can take quite a bit of time cost your money. Um, and also, if you don't know how, how to do it, it's a bit can be a bit of a hassle, depending on which area you're in, et cetera. But the good thing about it is that he bought a bit of land ready to build, and it already had a builder uh, contracted, or at least yeah. a builder who said he can put this particular type of house on there. All you had to do was basically pay him and go and make sure that he wasn't robbing you.
0: Yeah, basically, okay. and
1: then do all the checks at the end, yeah, and then yeah. do
0: the landscaping
1: and all of that at the yeah, end. Yeah, you it. had to do all the landscaping.
0: Yeah, so we did the landscaping that was included. It was just really the house sitting there. Um, even fences and all of that wasn't driveway wasn't. So I had to, I guess, seek people out to do that. Um, and that's when it came down to me selling off some things that I had, you know, like I had a a fairly nice car at that point, but I had to sell that. I lost some money on it, but I needed just to get out of everything at that point. Um, and I was, I think down to like my last couple of thousand dollars by the end of it, putting the driveway in, but I knew that I was going to get rent back for that. Um, and that property was positively geared. So from day one, I was making money out of that. Um, which was, I guess, a, a good outcome for me. I knew it was going to be good.
1: So you you're renting at at a rental income greater than the interest payments and or the the principal and interest payments, or just yeah. interest payments.
0: Yeah. So it was greater than everything because of the after depreciation, because it was new, obviously yeah. as well. Um, I was making about 150
1: dollars a week. Wow. Okay. So did you sell up? You sold that property? No, I've still got it. still got that property. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you, so you've got a property there worth, let's call it 500,000. Yep. I don't know, what, whatever it was at the time after you spent all the money on it, et cetera, and it's gone up in value. And 10 years or eight, nine years ago, there was a pretty strong property market. You know, it certainly was a rising tide as opposed to what we've experienced the last 12 months, but it was, you know, it was moving up. So where'd you get your next deposit to buy your next property?
0: Yeah. So from the the very first one, I actually leveraged out of that one. Uh, you better explain fight. to me
1: what that means.
0: Yeah. So that property had gone up in value. Uh, what I did was went straight back to the banks. I worked out how much equity I had in that and I was, I had enough. For you better a, explain what equity is. So equity is just the difference between what the, they value the property at. When you bought it. Yeah. When you bought it and then what the value is that day. So you can then use roughly up to 80 or 90. I actually leveraged myself right back up to 95% again. Um, I knew that the market was really good and I, I guess today would never do that. But back then, because the market was going so well, I wanted to leverage myself as much as I could. Paid lenders, mortgage insurance, went back to the banks, grabbed the money back out. And then I put got that to stop you there.
1: the second one. You, you're covering too much information, <laughs> mate. So let me just t- stop you there for a second. So what Daniel did is that he had borrowed 95% of the 300 odd thousand purchase. Um, he put in 5% deposit, obviously paid the stamp duty to buy the land. Then what he also did, and and there's something quite interesting here. Um, If he had bought the house and land together, he would have paid a lot more stamp duty. Because he bought the land, then built the house, he paid a lot less stamp duty. There's a saving in that, especially if the house is going to cost you more than the land's worth. Um, So that's a little trick for anybody listening to this. But it is, on the flip side of that, it's a little bit harder to borrow construction funding from a bank today. Even then it was too. So, and you've got to go through the process of actually doing the construction. So, you know, that, that's not for the faint hearted, but if you've got a good builder and you, you know, if you want to try to build a portfolio, you know, a good builder is someone that's like a good banker or a good, he- uh, good barber, you, you stick to them. Um, and then what Daniel did is when the property was built, the difference between what he borrowed to buy the land and to build the house and the value of the property is what he's talked what he's calling is his equity the value of the property a couple of years down the track is the equity what he's called equity in other words it's the the profit he's made but hasn't has well the profit the gain which hasn't been realized but it's a gain sitting there at any one particular time based on what the property market was presenting and what you're able to do what he did is he went out and borrowed he said leverage but basically what he means is he borrowed against that valuation so let's say the property is now worth 500,000. He went and borrowed ninety five percent of five hundred thousand. A bit harder to do that today. Um, banks not all that keen on doing that sort of stuff. But um, but still, at the time, he took advantage of the situation. He borrowed ninety five percent of that five hundred thousand, and with that, um, he got some extra money. So you know he he you know when I say ninety five percent, he already owed some money. There was some money left over. How much? Around about, about, I around about, about have a about, have a guess.
0: Uh probably about like in the equity side of yeah. things, it was probably around that thirty forty thousand dollars somewhere. And then, what did you do with that? That bought my second property, which is a mortgage e sale. So that is literally two streets from my other property. Uh, that was a again property, in Picton. Yeah, and it was all damaged inside, so someone had gone in there and just destroyed it. Um, I got that quite cheap. So the guy that actually bought it in two thousand and eight paid three hundred and ten thousand. Uh, in 2012, I paid 303000 for it. So, right,
1: but you needed to work it. You had needed to fix it up.
0: Yeah, yep. So I went in there and fully renovated the How did you myself. find that property? Uh, that one was just through a real estate agent. So I just was networking with the real estate agents in, in the area. Um, it was around 2012, so there wasn't too much activity in the property market at that point. So I was really coming in the recovery phase of Sydney. Uh, so I was really jumping in uh, a car with a real estate agent. He'd show me like five, 10 properties in a day. Cause back then they had time and, uh, and then I picked the one that I like. So we ended up picking that one because it was damaged. It needed to be fixed up, but I could see value out of that. Okay.
1: Okay. What's interesting here is we've established a couple of attributes of people who invest in real estate. The first one is that Daniel obviously had acquired some knowledge as to how real estate works, you know, opportunism, how to borrow money, more importantly, how to save money. Um, how to find a builder, how to make sure the building gets complete. You realize all of a sudden you've got to... And, and he was prepared to make sacrifices. But the next thing to get your second property is you need to network. And, uh, and that's what we're talking about now. I mean, this networking thing that you're talking about, Daniel, that we're talking about here, increasing your chances of getting better opportunities or more opportunities. And the only way you're going to do that is ask other people because you don't know whether you can't mind read the owner's mind to say that a property's up for sale or it's going to be a mortgagee sale or et cetera. Um, So you decided to start a network. You built out your network and that requires work. You have to actually go with people and have a look what's for sale or what's coming up. And also how you can help them. Establish a relationship with the agents as well
0: was important. So if anything was coming up, they were going to let me know first rather than other people. And why would they let you know? Because what's their objective? It's because I guess back then, uh, even though I was only buying one property, I was, I guess, actively calling them every week. So for me, it was like, this guy's just won't go away. He keeps calling me. So if a property does come up, I know he's in the market. I know he's got a pre-approval. He's ready to go. Um, And this is his price range. And this is what he's looking for. So I was very clear on what I wanted at that point. And then I just went out there and just called the agents every week until I found something.
1: And of course, an agent's interested. Like, I just want to get the property away. Yeah. So who gonna who gonna give this to? Who's going to buy it from me? Cause a big deal for agents You got to find a buyer. Yeah. Especially in 2012, I got to yeah. find a buyer and who's someone who's ready to go. And of course, Daniel was ready to go. That's yeah. you. So you work this stuff out. I mean, this intuition, um, I mean, which you've developed yourself. Maybe you had a little bit of help for, from your parents, et cetera, or maybe that's just they've been brought up. But, It's about finding the opportunities because property is about the price you pay. It's not always about the price you sell for. You've got to buy cheap. You've got to buy well. You've got to buy well. If you spend too much on your property, there's chances are you, well, the chances are making a profit are reduced or become at risk. If you buy really well and cheap, then, and assuming you can add some value, then your chances of making money are enhanced. Yes. That's not guaranteed.
0: Yeah, it's all in the buying. Like I've, even with some of my properties i've I've made you know 30 forty grand straight away just in the buying and I've been able to value properties 30 40 grand higher within a six month period and it wasn't that the area went up it was that I bought very well at the start
1: yeah and that's that's like critical I mean if you're listening here our audience um, if you're trying to build property portfolios you're obviously trying to do it because you want to add value and bring bring up the value in the property. It's all about the buying. And if you want to buy well, yeah, it's best to buy in distressed environments. Um, you know, someone needs to sell. How are you going to find a distressed environment? Well, you've got no chance unless you speak to the agents, who, who the people who, who handle everything for the vendors. So you've got to get off your ass and you've got to be prepared to do the yards and start talking to people to find out what have they got coming up on the market, And which means you've got to go, again, do the yards. You've got to go visit these places. You've got to drive around with the agent when the agent's available. And let the agent know that you've got your approval. So you've got to go out and get your pre-approval. You've got to be ready to pounce. No that point, someone showing you property if you're not ready to pounce. Yeah. You've got to have the
0: best conditions.
1: If you want to be able to get a property,
0: uh, you've got to have the best conditions going into the deal so that they know that you're serious and that you're, you're going to close quickly. You've got your deposit ready and you've got your pre-approvals, everything ready to go.
1: And do the agents like to think that if you put off for sale, that you sort of indicate to them that you're going to use them to sell it for you?
0: Uh, sometimes. Yeah. And, and, or like if I buy a property, sometimes that agent will be already saying, well, you're going to rent it through our agency as well. Yeah. Um, I've have indicated that I would just because I knew that that was going to help me get the deal as well.
1: Yeah. Because you're selling, I mean, the whole time you're selling and you're selling to the agent, I mean, the agent thinks you're buying from him, but you're also selling to him. Yeah. So you're selling to the agent, even though he's really selling to you, he thinks he's selling to you, you're actually selling to him. Yeah. in order to get the best opportunity back to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of a, an interesting uh, psychology that has to be employed if you are trying to get in at the lowest possible price to see, all the, most opp- see the most opportunities you possibly can, given you a limited amount of time. So over time, let's say you talk to 20 agents, over time you'll find there's probably three agents that are good. Yeah. And then you hone in on those three agents. They become your targets.
0: Yeah. I, so what I did was I basically looked at all the agents and you can see some of the agents that will sell the, the properties for the highest price and you go, I don't, don't even want to talk to them. Uh, and then you look at other properties and you go, or other agents in the area and you go, that guy just wants to move property. So he's the guy I'm going to talk to because I know I'm going to get the best deal from him. So it's really about working out before you even look at the the properties, what agent and just looking at the sales saying who's trying to just move property and who's trying to get the highest price for property. So you, you go with the right
1: agent to get the best price. So what Daniel's saying, if you're trying to build a portfolio um, of property, so he just hasn't been lucky. It's about profiling. Not only have you got a profile where you want to buy a Properties, in other words, which properties you want. You've got to profile the area, but you've got to profile the agents. Profile the guy's got control or the girl's got control of the property. And then just continually keep working that over and continually to keep profiling and refining the stuff. So what I just want to establish here is something I think is really important. If you want to build a property portfolio, you've got to remember one thing. You are in the business of property. You're in the business of real estate, residential, commercial, doesn't matter what it is. You're in this business because Daniel isn't just some dude walks around and says, oh, I might buy that, I might buy He's actually running a business. This is a business. The, the business he's running is knowing real estate agents, knowing about what, what he can borrow, uh, knowing about profiling those real estate agents, working those real estate agents over often and going with them on uh, you know, tours or whatever you call it, going around looking at properties for sale, knowing how much he can borrow. Knowing his bank manager, so his bank manager can give it, lend him money or alternatively might have used a broker down the track. Daniel is in the business of buying properties, renovating properties where where he wants to renovate, and then holding those properties. Because he's also got to be in the business after that of renting the properties. And that's a business. It's not just something you do randomly. It's a business. And we're going to come back to that after the break. So i want to ask him how he's expanded that business. So what, how did he go about renovating the properties? How did he get, does he, Has he got a, a favourite renovator? Um, how does he go about renting the properties? Does he rent them himself or does he use agents to rent them out for him? What happens if there's repairs? How does he go and find good repairmen? And then what is he going to do from there? So we're just going go to go the break and we'll come back. So I'm back from the break and I'm here with Daniel Walsh and we're talking about his property portfolio and what we established in the first half is that, I mean, I think it's fair to say, Daniel, I mean, i like your comment on this. Um, You're in the business of owning properties, buying properties, renovating properties and renting properties as opposed to just being a property investor. Would it be fair to say? Yeah. yeah. You, you do everything in a business-like way.
0: Yeah. Everything has to be in a business way. I don't, don't think you can be too emotional with property, especially... When you are going to be uh, renting them out, you need to be looking at it at numbers and you need to be looking at it as a business
1: to say, this
0: is what I'm buying it for. This is what I'm renting it for. Is this going to work uh,
1: long-term for me? And the emotion becomes, I mean, I've seen this happen to people. The emotion drops in um, to people when, for example, when they're to rent a property out, um, they forget that they're just trying to get a return to pay the mortgage and or the interest or whatever it is um, and try and get the two numbers as close together as possible the emotion comes in when people start to get carried away with the risk of having a tenant in. They go, oh, wow, I'm going to have a tenant. It's really risky. They might wreck the joint. I have just I just fixed up the bathroom. Um, your your point, I think your point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, your point is you can't be emotional in that regard. you just got to say, okay, now I'm looking for a return. I've done my assessment of the particular individual. I'll manage that risk down the track if something happens.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've actually had one of my houses, and it was my second property that had been, fully trashed. So somebody went in there and literally ruined the whole house. It was about $10,000 worth of damage in the end. And I guess after all that experience, I realized that you've got insurances in place for all of that when it does take place, if it takes place, you've got rent defaults if they don't pay your rent. So it's about having the correct insurances in place, just like a business, so that you know that if something was to come up like that, that you can take care of it and,
1: and then keep renting the property out. That, that's interesting. Uh, so you do, you have this, you do employ this play defensive type environment. So how do you play this defensive um, game when you're a property portfolio owner? And even if you've got two properties, you're still a portfolio owner. So how do you play it? I mean, Why do you play defensive? What do you do? Well, for
0: one, I think it's when you're buying the property, I always typically buy generally affordable. So I've always stuck to the more affordable side. But I need to look at what type of tenants before I even buy this, what type of tenants will this attract? So I need to go out there and that's, talking to property managers and saying, if I buy this property, what will it rent for? So I already know before I even get into the property what's it going to rent for, but what type of tenant will this attract? Uh, and is You that, mean more character? Yeah, character. So are they going to be a family? Are they going to be young professionals? Are they going to be you know, maybe someone on Drugies. Centrelink or something like that, right? Yeah. You know, So you need to work that out and then you need to take that risk on. If you're going to go on the lower end, you need to realize that you have a higher risk for a tenant perspective, uh, but that might be a higher cash flow or higher reward down the track. So you need to really look at that and say, am I willing to take that risk on? Uh, before you even purchase the property.
1: But, but what sort of insurances do you take, for example?
0: Yeah, so always landlord, building insurance, uh, and then rent default as well. What's uh, a landlord insurance? So landlord insurance is if something happened with inside, they destroy the house or something goes wrong and they've broken windows or anything like that, you can call up, you can claim through your landlord insurance and say that, well, the landlord's, uh, they've done some damage to the tenant, so I need to claim back on, on that.
1: Right, So and this is not to be confused with building insurance, which you need to take... To satisfy your lender, because lenders want you, mortgage companies want you to have building insurance. Landlord insurance is the insurance that gets paid to you, the landlord, if your tenant does something to ruin the joint.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the same thing with rent default. A lot of people don't put that in their policies. I've always put it in my policies to say that, you know, up to eight weeks if they don't pay rent. Um, I can claim that back through my insurance to say they haven't been paying their rent. So it really just covers all bases. If they don't pay rent, you need them to get out. It gives you time to get them out. Um, And the same thing if they destroy or do something with the building, uh, it also covers you for the rent that you didn't receive in that time while you uh, renovate the property to get it back up to standard to rent out.
1: So you're basically a property manager too. Yeah. So how does that work in your business?
0: Well, for me, I always try to push as much as I can onto property managers. So it's about having really good property managers. And then all I'm doing really is, like I said, you're networking with them all the time. How's my property going? You've got to you know continually update with those uh, with the property manager to see how it's going. Does it need maintenance? Uh, how are the tenants going? What's the inspection reports look like? So really having a good team, and I guess I've realized over the last decade is I've built really good teams all throughout Australia. Um, and that was purely by, by networking and really becoming friendly with uh, different agents and property managers. So uh,
1: Sophie, your wife, she's from a property management background? Yes. Is that her role in your business?
0: No, no. no. She, she does a lot of our admin side of things and leads that come in, doing a lot of emailing, social media, and she also does a lot of the settling of the houses as well.
1: Settling of the houses means paying yeah, so the we, money?
0: Yeah. So we take them all the way through to settlement and to property management as well. So Anyone that comes on board with us, um, we would have property managers for them. Well,
1: okay. So you're in. The, you're, this is important. You've established that you're in the business of buying properties, borrowing money to purchase them, um, uh, networking with agents to find out what's, what opportunities are available, how to renovate them, how to then rent them, how to then to manage the properties whilst they're being rented, and, and you know how to put all the bits and pieces together, like all the insurances, et cetera. So you've got the full gambit of how, and, and, and Sophie, your wife, you got you two got, guys got the full gamut of how to do this process in a skill sense. You've got the skill, you know, probably made a lot of mistakes on the way through, but you've learned your skill and you've got a property portfolio, but now you've actually gone and you've expanded into a new sort of business. So you're telling other people how they can do it. Is yeah. That right.
0: Yeah. So we're a property investment buyers agency. So we, help our clients, uh, purchase properties. We do that through existing properties. We don't do developing and and all of that sort of stuff. So no off the plan plan stuff. The reason why I started my business was, I remember when I was 19 years old, I actually went to a course, um, and it was quite a a good course at that time. And it was allowing me to expand my horizons interstate. Uh, but I realized that everyone sitting at the table, people were saying, I don't have time for this. I just wish someone could do it for me. Mm. And that's when I was like, you know what? If I can learn this, I can then teach other people. I can actually just do it for them. So instead of just teaching them, maybe I just go, you know what? Here's a full service for you. If you're time poor and you're a professional, or you want to build a portfolio but you don't know how, um, here's a team ready to go. Let's build the portfolio. Okay, well, tell
1: me, tell me what you do. Okay, we'll say so you. What's your business call? What's the name of it? Yeah, your property, your wealth. Your property, your wealth. Yeah, and your property, your wealth is a, um. I mean, you tell me what it is. It's an organisation that does what?
0: So we're a property investment buyers agency. What we aim to do is help our clients create financial freedom through property over a 10, 15, 20 year period. So we always look for the long term. We say, you know, for me, my very first question is how long do you want to buy a property for? If it's two, three years, they want to flip in that They're not for me. Uh, My clients are looking to build long term wealth and they're looking to do that over a 15 year plus period. So, you go and find the property for them? Yeah, so we find the properties, we find the areas, everything uh, for them to buy. So, we would give them general analysis on different areas throughout Australia and what's happening in those areas. And then they get to make their free range choice of roughly what they want to be looking for. So, it depends on, you know, someone might come to me and say, Daniel, I'm looking for a house for $400,000, but it needs to rent for $400 a week or more. Well, it probably won't be in Sydney, so we now have to start looking at other opportunities that's going to fit that criteria, um, and then we'll show them roughly what that is going to look like, and then they make the conscious
1: decision whether they like to, to buy there or not. So you, you actually, so let's say, you know, you're right, you know, if I'm going to buy something for $400,000, it's unlikely in Sydney I'm going to get $400 a week rent, which is a 5% return, um, so... You're, what you're saying is that um, you know you would say to that particular client, well, maybe you should be going to buy in Toowoomba or um, Orange or something like that, maybe a more regional area, um, and whatever yeah. it doesn't matter. You find that area yeah. that, that gives them the five the percent return. Yep. It doesn't matter the reason why they want the five percent return. You may or may not be able to get it for them, but once you find that property, h- how do you find that property? Like how do you go? How do you find a place in Toowoomba wherever it is? So we won't just
0: go to any location. So if it, let's say we're going to look at Brisbane. Generally, I'll be looking within a commutable distance back to Brisbane, so maybe within an hour of Brisbane. And we'll have different locations all the way in towards the CBD. Obviously, generally, as you go closer to the CBD, the yield becomes lower, prices become higher, and that's going to really determine the factor on where they're going to be purchasing at that point. Um, So for us, it's really just about establishing what they want in terms of purchase price, what they can borrow, what's going to fit their overall strategy. So sometimes someone might say, Yes, I can borrow $800,000, but I want two $400,000 properties. So that might be two properties 30 or 40 minutes out of the CBD on each side, north and south. Um, And then we really just go out there and start looking at those. I have networks, uh, say in Brisbane, I've got networks in uh, Melbourne, I've got networks in Sydney, and we do the exact same thing. So we've got property managers and we've got everything, uh, pest and building inspectors and the whole team ready to go. Um, And basically when they say, yes, we're ready to go, we go out there and start looking for properties for them.
1: Okay, so do you use brokers? I mean, do you, how, how do you get these? Do you help these people borrow the money?
0: Yeah. So we do have a, a mortgage broker on our yep. team as well. He, again, he's an investor himself. So everyone that's on my team generally are investors. He's got 21 houses. He's in his late 40s. He's been doing this for about 20 years. So he was really my early mentor around 2021 was when I found him. Uh, and he mentored me on the finance side of things. So I guess was helping me structure my property portfolio. Um, I got stuck at two properties. We ended up going all the way up to nine properties over the course of a few years. And that was more so thanks to him because at the end of the day, I can't buy properties if I can't borrow money. So I've got to learn how to borrow money first, and then I'm going to translate that into actually purchasing properties.
1: And I think what's pretty important in terms of just in that bit there, borrowing money today is not uniform across all the lenders. So lenders change their appetite literally daily today. Um, and a mortgage broker, his job or her job is to get on top of that appetite, to know who's lending at what price and what areas, how much, investor or owner-occupier. I mean, the, the, all, all the variables, there's heaps of them. Um, so you know, a mortgage broker t- today is worth their weight in gold if you've got a good one, um, and particularly if they're involved in your business because that's that your clients, your customers, um, who use you to help them invest, um, they, they, they were all going to need that, uh, access to a broker. And if you find them a good broker, so what you're doing now is you're parlaying out to the, a community of people of investors, um, all the things you've learned and all the experiences you've got and all the good people you found. And, uh, and you've now, you're now sort of, uh, amplifying that across a platform. Yeah. And it's called your money, your wealth,
0: uh, your property, your, your pro- wealth. Sorry,
1: your property, your wealth. Yeah. Do you have to have a license for that? I mean, do you have to have a license? to
0: do Yeah. That? So I fully uh, cert for so real estate license and a buyer's agent license. So being a buyer's agent, um, I need a buyer's agency license for that. Yeah. Does that mean you go to an auction for somebody? Like let's say I, I can. Yes. Yeah. I typically don't like to because if it goes to auction, I know that it's generally going to go over price. So for me, it's trying to get something off market, or if it's on market and it's going to go to auction, I'm going to try and buy it before it goes to auction. Um, typically what we see is, especially in places like your Melbourne's and Sydney's, if it goes to auction, there's 10, 15 bidders at that. Um, it will go well over. If it does get past, in, we'll then start looking at it as well.
1: Again, getting back to the point that we made earlier, that it's a lot of your profit or your, a lot of the value you get out of owning portfolios is in the purchase price. So you got to pay, you got to buy well, Yeah, buy well, you got to buy well. Can I just ask you, I mean there's no point in having this business and having all these people can do all these things for you. Like you've accumulated all these individuals over time and in different regions around Australia, um, unless you, unless people are coming to you and saying, Daniel, can you help me? Um, so how do you tell people about yourself? I mean, how do people know about this? A lot of it was started from social media. So, um,
0: I actually was running the business at the very start, which was just close family friends. I guess most businesses start out like that. Um, I had a lot of media attention, so articles and stuff like that coming out. And then a lot of people started reaching out to us. So we do a lot through social media marketing today. Uh, and that's predominantly between the media uh, and our social medias is where we have a lot of our clients actually come to us.
1: Well, explain too. to me what you mean by social media, because that covers a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah. So that's uh, mainly, we are focusing more on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, We do put our videos on YouTube as well, but it's a guest creating uh, each channel. And what we do is we put out stuff like educational videos and things like that. So if you want to learn about property, you don't necessarily have to go with me at that point, but we would uh, show you exactly what we're doing, how we're doing it. Uh, what different things mean in terms of you know, how to find a property manager and all that type of stuff. We put out educational videos weekly um, and a lot of our clients will
1: watch that. And what do you put time, that on YouTube? You put it on IGTV? Yeah, so that's on YouTube,
0: Facebook and
1: sometimes on Instagram TV as well. Right, okay. That's, yeah, okay. So I think what's, people who are listening to this, uh, Daniel and his wife have got a business that is um, not only they managing their own properties and buying their own properties, but they're charging a fee, I guess. To people to, to help others build their own portfolios. Um, the way he markets this is through social media. And, you know, it's all very well to talk about social media here. And I mean, like, I mean, I know people who, in the property game, real estate agents and whatever you like that, and mortgage brokers for that matter too, who they think social media is a picture of them walking along the beach with their Labrador or something. Um, and where social media has become very valuable is not actually in social. It's called social media, but it's actually business media, and where your environment is is about education. Um, so your what you're saying to me is, I use social media platforms, not in a social way. I'm not being social. You might do it in, a, in your own name, but not not in terms of uh, your property, your wealth. Your property, or your wealth is a using a social media platform or social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and you your proposition. Is you're an educator, that's yeah. how you get them in.
0: Yeah, so we do even things like webinars as well, eBooks, um, different things. So we'll give away. We might do a, a free webinar that's half an hour. They can watch that, uh, then they can go in and uh, look at an eBook and, and read that. So they're getting a lot a of education, a lot of education before they even. You're not wow. chatting to
1: them. You're not sort of saying, "Hey guys, how good am I? I got this fucking great house here, and uh, you got nothing." You're not doing any of that shit. No. What you're doing is you're saying, "I'm going to educate you." Yeah. Yeah, So you're using the platforms to education. So, I mean, one of the things I want to just quickly talk to you about is, and and to our audience, is that for them to remember is this. These social media platforms, I hate using the word social because I just, it's an old school mindset. um, And, you know, some young people use it for social, social. In other words, you know, they're traveling or they're eating a pizza or something like that. But where the, platforms are moving towards is more in the business environment and that they use these platforms as marketing your business proposition. And education is a really powerful one um, because, you know, like it's most of us want to be like somebody else, like you. Yeah. And therefore what your proposition is, is like, I can show you how to be like me. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to, you know, it's what we do at a mentor, we're trying to educate people and small business owners. and. What you're doing with uh, with your platforms is that you are, I, I presume you're giving a lot of free stuff away, you know, free education. And then, then once you build your community through your, by the way, it's your own broadcast. You own this TV station. This is your TV station, YouTube. This is your TV station, you know, Instagram. This is your TV station, Facebook. Sure, you're using a broadcaster, but it's your show. And you're basically advertising to your community every time you get onto your show. Yeah. It's constant advertising. Constant, like you want to go right back to the beginning of this podcast where you're selling. You're selling to the real estate agents why the real estate agents should be dealing with Daniel. Yeah. Now what you're doing is you're selling to your community why they should deal with Daniel. Yeah. And it's the same game. It's just advertising. But yeah, it's free. Much. I mean it's your time. Yeah. But it's basically free unless you don't paid it, advertising, but it's basically free. What you're doing is free. You're using someone's platform yeah. for nothing.
0: It's showing value as well. So before I don't, a lot of people, are, I guess, very wary of what, you know, the, the property market is and all of that. So for me it's I'm not asking anything from you. I'm just gonna give you value and if you see value in that and then eventually you wanna build a property portfolio they'll come back. So it's building that community over a long term. Um, I have had clients that have watched me for 12 months before they've even really gotten into contact with me for the first time. And that's because they wanted to build trust and that trust is built through giving them education and showing them that I know what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, you've got to give something, Look, this sounds terrible, you've got to give something away for nothing Yeah, and and not expect anything in return. Yep. And you've got to ex- wait for them to want to treat with you as opposed to you sort of forcing it down their throat like some of these marketeers do with these, Mad seminars that they hold yeah. where they send you down the back of the room and say, look today, um, it's half price. Cause normally it's 25,000, but we're going to give you for 12,000. We're going to lock in for a year though. Um, and I do frankly, I hate that shit. Um, and therefore there's a market there because as soon as you've got something where you can combat, you put yourself in a position where you've got a market, you've created a market, you've got somebody who you're against. Yeah. You need to be against someone. Do you, um, make noise around ethics of marketing i mean Massive. is that
0: something you do around the property space massively and i think a lot of buyers agents do that uh, and that's because we act for our client and we get paid a fee for service so everything's very transparent as a buyer's agent uh, property groups aren't buyers agents but they sometimes will perceive themselves as that and then they'll get a thirty, forty thousand dollar kickback uh, from a developer or something like that so we voice ourselves as I guess, ethical, and we show that through the education, saying that, hey, everything's transparent. Um, yes, we do get a fee for servers and we show you exactly what we charge, everything like that. Um, but we want to be ethical in what we do, and you can see the clear difference between the marketeers
1: and us. So I mean, help me out here, because I've seen a few buyers' agents popping up around the place. Um- and I've often wondered, you know, how popular are they? I mean, are they, are they becoming more popular? Are buyers' agents becoming more acceptable? Because when a buyer buys something, they're sort of thinking they're paying twice because they, they pay you, the buyer's agent. But they're also there's a, a vendor's agent and they know that there's the vendor's agent's fees embedded in the purchase price. How do you get over that hump? Yeah. Well, uh, typically we
0: represent value when we purchase a property for them that they don't have to, I guess, spend hours and hours trying to look for. We get them really good properties at that point. So we would save generally our fee just by purchasing. It. And we can demonstrate that uh, multiple times over that if we if they you know pay us $10,000 and we get $20,000 off the price, or we get that $20,000 off comparables, then they can see that its value for money and then they didn't have to do anything, but they also were confident in getting the right property as well, because somebody was able to help them throughout that.
1: So you basically they don't have to do the research, you're doing no. all the work for them? They do.
0: Yeah. So they basically just get a team straight away and said, we can show you exactly if you want to buy here, we can show you why you're buying here, we can show data on that. Um, we can then also have your pest and buildings and solicitors and your property managers Everyone is going to be there uh, for you. And if you're not confident in buying a property or you don't have time, uh, we can help you out on that front.
1: I think it's a great business. I love the business. Um, Daniel, unfortunately we run out of time. Um, I'd love to talk to you for ages. But, but I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question because I've been asking you all the questions. So do you have a question for me? I did. I've been thinking about this
0: for a, for a little while. What I've seen was, I guess, a lot of large-scale companies actually scaling back. Today, do you think that it's, it's more beneficial to have a company that's lean or to be trying to scale that to large scale
1: still? And also, do you think that a personal brand is a must now going forward? Well, to answer the second part first. I'm going to think a personal brand is a must in order to cut through because, I mean, branding is about adding personality. Um, you can't add personality. Well, it's very difficult to add personality if it's just in a name or if it's about um, some sort of icon. Uh, but yeah. if you've got an actual, got a person, then it's easy to add a personality. Easier. Yeah. do not necessarily going to work, but it's easier. So I do believe being prepared to put yourself out in front of a brand helps you build a brand. Yep. Yes. Um, in terms of this, the first question, um, lean versus scale. Um, my answer to that is you have to cut the cloth to suit. So what I mean by that is I always look at a tide. So if the tide is rising, so if we, were, if we are in a rising um, property tide, in other words, we expect property prices to rise for five years like you did yeah. from 2012 to 2017 for yep. you, then I'd say we scale up the business and we go hard. Um, and we try and take as many angles where we can make money or offer services that can make money out of that rising tide. Where the tide is flat, we stay lean. So my own business, Yellowbrick Road, I've sold my wealth business. I'm selling my wealth business. I just sold one of my wealth assets off last week, um, and I'm staying lean. But I do believe that the property market or the lending market, in my case, is going to pick up, and I will scale up as it does. Yeah. So it's all about the the demand, the aggregate demand that sits in your space, and you cut your cloth to suit that space there's no point carrying a lot of extra overheads because you think you're going to make some money out of some other area in a market that's flat. Yeah. So when the market starts to pick up, you've got to be ready to gear up. It's called, you know what gearing up means? It's just gearing up when the market allows you to, you can't beat the markets. Yeah. Nobody can beat the markets. And not give a shit who you are. You will not beat the market ever. Nobody's ever beaten the market. I mean, pretty much you won't predict the markets either. That's a rare thing as well. So, Look at your market. Look at the aggregate demand, in my opinion. Gear up when that demand picks up. Um, if your market is already in a rising tide, then go for it. Put your head down, tail up, and rip in. Yeah, start scaling. <laughs> totally. Scale, scale, scale. But, I mean, well, you, you will hear. You you will hear, and a lot of people who are listening to this hear these things called scalability. Scalability. You get all these uh, public speakers talk about scalability all the time. Scalability is only... Pr- uh, uh, possible in a rising tide. Yeah. You can't scale against the tide. It's just yeah. all bullshit. I mean, like people keep jamming this oh scalability. I keep hearing it all the time. It kills me. You know, you can't do it in a flat market. Yeah, exactly. You've got to have everything going right to scale to pay the overheads. Correct. <laughs> you can't just keep building up the ability to scale if if the people aren't coming, you've got nothing. Yeah. So, you know if... So you scale as you need it really. Yeah, totally. And, and as and as the opportunity presents, you can't create scale. Yeah. You can serve a scale. Yeah. Scalability gets presented to you. So you really want to wait for the demand and the demand will show you scale. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And the, and and like you, in my industry, I get spruikers out there on Instagram and various other places holding seminars talking about scalability. And really where they're making their money is by you paying them because yeah. they're not scaling themselves because they know- They're, they're keeping scal- it as a small personal brand. <laughs> they man, they are. And that kills me. I mean, it really kills me because they're not prepared to talk the truth. The truth is, or maybe they don't never even experience it, but the truth is you can't scale in the market unless the tide is rising. End of story. Daniel, really nice to meet you and to you too. Sophie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Mark. <laughs>